Welcome to the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Diversity Matters Initiative at AAVMC. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. I am delighted to introduce today's show. Today, we're going to be talking with minority women about minority women's presence in veterinary medicine. This episode follows an arc of programming that we've been doing related to intersectionality. The original show was dropped in September. That's episode 41. If you are interested in going back and listening to the original episode on introducing this particular concept. And then in November, we did a show on minority men in veterinary medicine. That is episode 44 in your podcast feed. So, Minority women currently make up about 15% of all veterinary students in the U.S. And similarly, they are increasingly making up that majority of non-white veterinarians in the U.S. and abroad. And for as much as women are increasingly overrepresented in the profession, and we know that 80% of, of all veterinary students here and in many other countries are enrolled in vet school, Some of the things that we're starting to kind of talk about is the fact that minority women still comprise a fairly small proportion of that population. Um, And when we talk about intersectionality, the concept, which is the concept of individuals having multiple personal ways of identifying based on many personal characteristics, minority women may be dealing with a number of different kinds of experiences within the profession, particularly dealing with racism and sexism in ways that other populations do not experience. So today we will explore this issue with my guests. I am pleased to welcome Drs. Mendisa Green, Fernanda Fajeda. Yes, perfect. Awesome. And Dr. Monica Howard from ISU. So welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So as is uh, the custom on diversity and inclusion on air, I asked my guests to do a bit of self-introduction and tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to veterinary medicine, where you graduated from, and all of that kind of good stuff. So Mendisa, why don't we start with you? Okay. Uh, Hi, my name is Mandisa Green. I am a small animal vet and have been one for about 10 years. I came to veterinary medicine. I always wanted to be a vet. It was one of those things that I always wanted to do. That I was that kid that knew at eight years old that I wanted to be a vet and basically just followed my dream, despite lots of people telling me not to do it. If I had, I always say if I had a dollar for everybody who told me not to do it, I'd be a millionaire by now. So maybe I should have just started collecting dollars instead. But yeah, so I, I yeah, that, that's how I came to it. And small animal vet, loving it. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Monica. So I'm Monica Howard. I'm originally from Tennessee. I earned my DVM at Tuskegee University in Alabama. Just like Mandisa, I had always wanted to be a veterinarian, was supported by my family um, partially, and in high school, not so much encouraged. And I don't know what the reason for that was, because there were a couple of us in my high school class. One was a white female and then myself. And I don't recall 
that person being discouraged, but I wasn't actively encouraged. I have been a veterinarian since 1982. I have a, a PhD in pathology. And so my training is in pathology, taught in the pathology department here at Iowa State for many, many years. And now I'm in an administrative role in the Office of Academic and Student Affairs. Awesome. Welcome. And Fernanda. Hi, I am Fernanda Ferreira. I am originally from, from Brazil. I got my DVM from the Federal University of Minas Gerais State, which is currently the, the best uh, university in Latin in, in South America. And as Matiza, I was, I would be rich too. You know, if I, if I had one dollar for every time I heard, no, don't go to vet school. And I think that mainly because I graduated in 2003. So I think the main reason is that because at that time, and what I heard, especially from my father, is that it was a man's profession. In Brazil, uh, most of the students go, uh, most of the, uh, the students work with large animals. And I think that's why in his mind, it, w- it was a profession for, for guys, for boys, not for girls. But I was not discouraged by that. And nowadays he's like, oh, I'm so proud. And so that, that's good. That's good. I worked after finishing my, my, my DVM. I got my master's degree in Brazil. Always worked with food animal production. I worked uh, for uh, six years for uh, in private uh, private companies in Brazil for cargo for another company in Brazil. Then I started working for the government, and in 2014 I came to the U.S. to get my PhD, and I ended up staying. So today I am a, a faculty member of the Department of Population Health and Reproduction at UC Davis, and I work with herd health and management economics. Awesome, welcome. So I'm. Really, really excited that we have three amazing women on the show today. Got a lot of diversity. We've got different countries, languages, all kinds of good stuff. So let's dive on in. So I'm going to start with Monica. Do So do you see yourself in veterinary medicine? If I was at Tuskegee, I would say yes. <laughs> the farther you get away from that, that university, the less and less I see myself in this profession. As far as representation, if, mm-hmm. if I'm understanding your, your question correctly. So I can tell you that when I walk into work where I am, I'm an N of one. And so I, I don't see myself with my colleagues. And with the, to be, oh, let me first back up and say, because I think you had asked us to do this and I am remiss, I identify as African American female. So I don't see myself in within the space of my colleagues, but even in our student population, there's there's been African-American women um, that have been accepted and have graduated, but few and far between African-American males since I have been here, we have had, a, and I've been here since 1990, graduated one. So um, I'm seeing a lot more students of Latin uh, culture coming through the program, but not very many African American students or students who are maybe of Caribbean descent coming through our program. So to just be clear, I want to make sure I understood one black male since 1990. Yes, yes. Oh, we're just going to leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> this that's a whole nother show. 
<laughs> Female only only, right? But, you know, what has been your experience, Fernanda, especially kind of coming to the States? Kind of what is life like at Davis? Certainly, I know that the faculty there are probably a little bit more diverse than at some of our member institutions, at least in the States. What has been your experience? Well, that, that's a that's an amazing question, actually, because I always try. I was in Florida before where I got my my Ph.D. And then I came here, you know, and then I came originally from Brazil. So I always try to understand how it was, how it was in Florida and how it is here now. To me, what I have to say now is it's amazing in terms of faculty diversity. You know, I work with the faculty that I collaborate the most one is from here, one is American, the other one is from Spain, the other one is from Uganda, the other one is from Brazil. And and yeah, so these are the the, the my and and my collaborators in Florida. One one is from Brazil, the other one is from the Netherlands, and the other one is from Uruguay. So in terms of faculty, that's the environment that I am working now. It's amazing. Oh, and we have Sharif, which is from who, who's from Egypt. So it's amazing. When it comes to the students, then there's a whole lot of, you know, difference. I, I agree with Monica, and the, this is not different even in Brazil. But the program in Brazil is a five-year program, and I had one Black colleague, one Black student. And so we we're there for five years, but there's students coming, students coming, and students going. And there was one Black student, one Black male. Mm. So... Um, this, I don't think in the terms of student population, you know, based on my sample size, I don't think it's it's that different. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't work with small animals. I work with large animals and I work with food production animals. So I know it's different because I know that the minority of vet students want to go to this path. So maybe that's why we have a lot of people from other countries working in this field here in the U.S. So maybe I have a biased sample size to discuss that. But so far, the experience has been great. But uh, since 2003, when I graduated and coming from a... I don't, I don't think there is a whole lot of difference in terms of women and uh, the, the issues that we face here in the U.S. in terms of women and men or used to face and not the other way around, having more girls, you know, more female students than, than boys... It's the same thing down there, I believe, and I think it's the same thing in a lot of different areas of the world. But in terms of diversity, we still face this challenge in terms of the student population, and I see very clearly here. So that, that's not my point. This is a really interesting perspective about the the kind of the international piece and and how many um, international faculty we have. But kind of, you know, what's happening kind of at the student level and the domestic level can be very different than than what folks might experience as faculty. And Lisa, I'm, I'm glad that you're still with us. So what are things like in the, in the UK? You're a graduate of University of Edinburgh. So I, it was interesting listening to Monica talk about the difference between Tuskegee and then moving away from there and kind of feeling the difference. But in the United Kingdom, I went to the University of Edinburgh. I was the only one in the five years of vet school. So in the entire time of being in vet school, I was was kind of the only one that I could see, the only person of colour that looked like me. And therefore, I don't even think I, ha- I ever had the luxury of feeling like a part of something else or a mm. part of something more. I was always 
by myself. I knew that this kind of from day one that I was the only one in the journey. And it's very interesting seeing kind of what you guys have going on at the moment with them, your Virginia governor and the the blackface issue. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because I was saying to my husband, I remember going into a vet school student union performance and there were characters dressed in blackface. And this is in 2001 or 2002. And it was kind of very recent. And so I had to see all of that Mm -hmm. in very recent history without anybody else being able to stand with me and say this is wrong um, and so yeah. having to fight a lot of battles on my own and in terms of further kind of wider now I'm graduated in a professional wider um, kind of inclusion in the profession again it's it's very very the numbers are small. I don't meet many professionals of colour um, regularly on, on a daily basis. And yes, it's something you get used to. I wouldn't say yeah. it's challenging because it's not. Mm. It's just part of the way that life is. And you kind of get used to it. So I do get used to people assuming I'm the, I'm the nurse when they walk into the room mm. and not not the vet, uh, the veterinarian. Sorry, you see American too, but not the veterinarian. So yeah, I get used to that a lot. And it, it is very much um, very, very isolated, very isolated. Yeah. yeah. So clearly one of the challenges, I mean, is just kind of basic representation across groups, right? You know, I had a question about, you know, in leadership, but if, if folks are not there <laughs> at any level, <laughs> you know, yeah. seeing yourself in leadership, whether as, as women of color, I think is probably especially kind of challenging. I mean, I think that there's this issue, this intersection, right, of of gender and ethnic identity. You certainly, I think that we're seeing women very broadly, and I say broadly, but often we really kind of the default is white women ascending to leadership, but the numbers of of women of, of color or women who identify as minority women that is a very small population as well. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. yeah. So some of the things that you've all described are, are very recent, but how do you think that things have changed in, in veterinary medicine as from the perspective of minority women? What What's different? So, you know, Monica, you've been in Iowa for a long time now, and this is not a slam against Iowa or any other locale, but are things different than, you know, 1990 when you came? I would say if we're talking African-American women, Mm -hmm. there's no difference. I, I used to look at our population of students that would matriculate, and it seemed that we would accept an African-American or a a Black woman every four years. That's just how it equated when you extrapolated things. I would say that with respect to women of Hispanic or or Latin American um, descent, and and I'm including in that Puerto Rico, the numbers were greater in Mm -hmm. that. And in fact, now we have a very large population of students from that ethnic group. So, and that includes men and women, even with the small percentages of men, we still have representation, mostly from Puerto Rico. Yeah, so that has been a change. Asian students, we we still keep a small number of those students. And, and we have a program that we have students from China coming into the program. So that's on the international side. But I would say with respect to the African-American population, there's not really been any change. In fact, it's it's decreased. 
So, um, Mendita, you mentioned kind of getting used <laughs> to things, which is pretty uncomfortable having to get used to things that are uncomfortable, right? But how, you know, have things changed since your early years of starting out in the profession? In terms of representation of people of color? In terms of not only kind of the representation, but also um, still kind of grappling with kind of moving through the profession personally, you know, what is your experience? At least has the incidence of you being mistaken for not being the veterinarian has gone, has it gone down? No, I just start to introduce myself as Dr. Green. I start to introduce myself as Dr. Mandisa Green, first of all, so that they don't mistake me. That's what I do. That's how the incidents, you learn to manage. And, and mm-hmm. so I don't think much has changed from being in practice. Because I'm a vet that's in practice. And um, so I am kind of hands-on with animals on a daily basis and dealing face-to-face with clients on a daily basis. And if I look back at 10 years ago to now, I don't think much has changed. And I wouldn't say it's difficult because it's not a level of uncomfortableness. It's just a level of it's just a level of acceptance of what is. And certainly my it, it is it is very much my choice to be in in my location and to be where I am placed geographically. And I understand by that that, that the consequence of that is that I am isolated in where I am so not much has changed I don't see many students because you know we we can see students coming in to to get practice to have work experience I don't see many students of color coming into the practice so I can tell by that then there are not many students of color um, or not not a a great deal more coming through you know the the schools in the in the geographic location that I am so um, yeah not much has changed but yeah So I want to shift gears a little bit. And Fernanda, I'm really kind of interested, you know, have you had any experiences that have made you maybe hyper aware of both gender and ethnicity, kind of that intersection? Um, And and if you could kind of speak to that a little bit, maybe what is what is that like? Yeah, I think that my experiences most of the time, since actually I decided to work with large animals, specifically food animals, food production systems, I've been self-aware or hyper-aware of the fact that I'm a, I'm a woman. And it was both in Brazil and here. Because despite, like, as I mentioned before, and uh, as you know, I'm in a very diverse environment here at Davis. But when I walk, as I was, as I just did this morning, when I go to the dairy pavilion in the World Ag Expo that's happening right now here in Tulare, I don't know. But if I had to guess, I would say 90% of that population is men. So all the time, and it was the same thing when I was in the field, it was the same thing when I was working for the private company. When I worked for the government, it was a little bit different because I think it was, you know, it's a, a comfort position where you don't have to every day face, you know, the farmers or the, the, the guys that work for other companies. So I think that that was, that's definitely one thing where I am all the time self-aware that I'm a, I'm a woman. And I like my days, I got used, I got used to that, you know, and I try to, the exercise is okay, whatever, they can think whatever they want, you know, and I am, it's like a, I have to, you know, motivate myself and empower myself every time, okay, whatever, and remind myself that's their business if they are thinking that I don't belong, because I belong, so I keep, but I, it's a lot of energy that we spend doing that, and another point that I think it's important is, and this is, this will sound a little bit 
funny maybe because I've laughed already about that. But let's say you are in a dinner, you know, where people are supposed to bring their families. So it's a, a company dinner or an event. And then I'm there with my husband and the 90% of the other people that are there, they bring their wives. So then the wives hang out in the corner and they want to talk about their stuff, which does not mean that I don't like that stuff. But at that moment, I want to connect. You know, I want to see what they're talking about, opportunities, the business stuff, the stuff that I do. But I don't belong to that group. So that's mm-hmm. the most they expect. And even the wives, they expect me somehow to be in that group. And it happens in meetings. It happens in my small group of friends. So that's all the time trying to please, to navigate between two worlds. So, yeah, it's it's challenging. Wow. But, So, yeah, please, Mendisa or Monica, jump in. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely able to to relate to that whole, you know, having to expend energy to kind of psych, not psych yourself up, but almost you're wearing double layers in terms of you yourself, but you have to be able to layer up to exist in in the environment that you are. So definitely can identify with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a really interesting thing because I do, I think that I'm a woman of color too. I identify as African American and and yeah, there is many said I do think of it kind of as a psyching yourself up kind of like, you know, there's you go in and you've got to do the pep talk and there's some self-validation. No, I I, I belong here. Yeah. <laughs> These are my people even if they're my people. Like, I belong here. And then there are also those times, and I think that, Fernanda, you kind of hit on it, where one part of, of your identity maybe steps forward and is really, really kind of obvious at any given time. And it really kind of depends on those circumstances. So in certain environments, the fact that you're Latin may really be the thing that is kind of the identity that's stepping forward versus another time where it may be a very gendered environment that you're wrestling with. And then sometimes it's it's both because you might be the only woman yeah. <laughs> in that environment and you happen to be different racially or ethnically. And so there's kind of some double talk, some double talk in, in that pep talk that might have to happen. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, do you all feel, do you feel any obligation as minority women to mentor and kind of take on and, and kind of provide care, <laughs> very broadly, air quotes, for minority students or minority colleagues? So I would say, so I coordinate what we call our faculty contact program, and that's where we try to match students who have specific species interest with faculty members who have that interest. And previously, when we had numbers, particularly Latino and Latina students or or Hispanic students, my thought process was, yes, I want to mentor these students, but I think it would be a good educational opportunity for someone who is of the majority you have to interact with someone who is not like them. It would it would be a personal development. And that's what I saw that as. And not, not that I would never connect with these students, but I wanted them to know that I've connected you with this person and hoping that this faculty member would embrace that as an opportunity to broaden themselves, to make themselves more aware culturally about 
the world, mm -hmm. um, so to speak. Now, that was a great idea as far as I was concerned. Does it pan out? No. So uh, what I've tried to do from now on is, you know, I, I'm taking these students on and I'm going to be their primary contact and I will get them connections to people, whether they're in production animal or pathology or whatever the case might be. I'll give them those connections. But this is the place where I want them to know that they can talk about what's impacting them besides their career choices how they have to navigate this profession in their skin, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lisa? So your question was, do I feel or would we feel any obligation to mentor um, other students or kind of students of color coming through? I don't have the opportunity to, because <laughs> there are, I, I don't meet any, but certainly I, I would I would feel it to be a privilege to uh, to mm. mentor any students who were were coming through because there is so much else like Monica was saying apart from the curriculum that you have to get mm -hmm. used to there is so much else that you have to understand and have to be educated about so that you can succeed in the profession and so it's really important that people find someone who they can who can help them and certainly somebody who's been through what you've been through is, is the, the best matchup for that but I, I've not met many um, students coming through who you know identify in that way who, who I can mentor but I think certainly in the United Kingdom we're talking about the low numbers I feel a big problem that one of the big problems is access. I do think that generally the backgrounds that, that um, the kind of people of colour are coming from, they're not exposed to the same levels of information. And I do think because in, in the United Kingdom, if you want to become a veterinarian, you have to go through a whole process of work experience and being at vets kind of from the age mm -hmm. of 15. You have to know what you want very early and aim to that aim to your, your North Star very early. And if you don't have that information, you cannot start on the same footing as your counterparts. And I think a lot of people just don't have that information, don't have access to the information, and therefore we have these low numbers. I do think there's so many people I meet who say, I would have liked to do that. I would have liked to do that. But somebody told me I wasn't smart enough. I would have liked to do that. But I, I, I just didn't think I could do it. And actually, if you have the information, if you're equipped with the information, then you can give it a, you can try your best and you can aim at your North Star and see if you can get there. But yeah, I do think we have a, a real problem in terms of access um, for people of mm. color generally here. So yeah, I would love to mentor anybody, <laughs> but yeah, not really have it. Really yeah, everybody in the UK. Oh, the needs are open <laughs> to take one minute, just, just saying. So Amanda, are students seeking you out at, at UC Davis and, and how do you feel about, do you feel like, hey, this is something extra that I should be doing? Do I have yeah. time? Again, that kind of cognitive burden. Of yeah, definitely. And an interesting thing that I think Monica mentioned is that who has contacted me are usually Latin students. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you they recognize themselves, maybe you know, they see me and they're like, oh, I relate to that person somehow because either my background or because we're a minority. These are the type of students that are contact. Uh, and I, and yes, I would like to, I 
was not uh, before going to vet school. I had no mentorship. So the processing was just a little bit different, but I had no mentorship. But once I was there, there was this amazing professor. We collaborate. Even nowadays, we have projects together. And she was and has always been my model. So she is someone that inspired me, has always told me, ah, if they look you like, oh, what she's doing here? Just say, you know, it's not easy, but it's a, when you start doing that all the time and all the time and all the time, at some point it becomes a habit. And then at some point you're not even realizing that you're doing that. So yeah, definitely. I feel like this, this obligation or, you know, moral obligation, more like a, maybe this is something that motivates me a whole lot in this whole work that I do is to guide and to motivate and to try to, you know, empower other girls and other minorities and say, hey, just go there. Although it's not always easy because we, and and I might be wrong, but I don't think I am, we are much more uh, technically speaking. I think you have to always prove yourself, especially in my case, coming from South America, I did my, my DVM down there. You have to always prove that you know what you're talking about more than I think other people. And I think mm-hmm. it happens, you know, Madiza probably went through that. I think it happens with all minorities. You have to go beyond. You have to know even more. You have to be very careful what you say, especially when it comes to technical stuff, because they can associate that small mistake that we all commit to yeah. your ethnicity or your background and you know, so then I I feel that. So definitely, I really want to to bring students from Brazil part of my program, learning all the opportunities from within UC Davis Global Affairs. How can I bring students here and open their minds? But definitely giving them, you know, a little bit of guidance of yeah. this this path what's coming ahead. You know, one of the things just to jump in here, one of the things that I've noticed is that there will be some students that you try to mentor or try to Hey, let's get together as a group and talk about some challenges we face. And 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 there's there's some students who want just they're of the, the mindset of, you know what, I don't want to be a part of that. Yep. I don't want to, I don't want to be, I want to be like, I want to be considered like everybody else. So I don't want attention being yep. drawn to my ethnicity, mm-hmm. my culture, my my sexuality. I don't want any of that. Just, you know, just let me ride through life the way I'm doing. And thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's hard. It is hard. That, yeah, that, that, I can identify very much. I think that that's very much a survival, a survival instinct more than anything yeah. else. Because if you're, what you're saying is that the majority of students, so there, there is a minority, if they are to get along with everyone else, it's really important for them to be able to get along like everyone else. And so kind of identifying yourself as separate or or recognizing or acknowledging the separateness in you makes you already different to everyone else. So I can understand Mm -hmm. that that's very much a a survival mechanism that is kind of utilized to to fit in and to succeed socially. Yeah, and but what's frustrating is you can have this the male student come in with a cowboy hat and Stetson and the big belts and they're out there, but let a student wear a Black Lives Matter sweatshirt and it's, oh, yeah. it's totally different. It's totally yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. 
So, yeah. So a couple of points I think that is really just so important. And I think that that um, this last part of the conversation about kind of the survival, <laughs> survival of the fittest. Right. And that there's a, a folks that there's a group of, of folks. And, and this is I don't think that there's a, a right or wrong way to do this, because I think that, frankly, we're all just kind of grinding it out right, and getting through this life as we know it the best we can. There is a population that's like, I'm not going to make any waves. I'm just trying to get this DVM. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. Right. Try to pay this tuition, get this DVM, get <laughs> out of here and get on with my life, right? Um, versus a group that may say, you know, wow, this is a grueling process and I need some tethers and I need some security and I need some support. And that support can come from multiple places. And I think it's really important for our listeners to know, especially when we talk about mentoring, this is not letting majority populations or majority genders off, you know, like this isn't your job. It is. It's everybody's job to support, you know, students and young professionals. And that there's absolutely a role for multiple mentors for different aspects of our identities, for different aspects of our career paths and all of those kinds of things. But there also may just need to be those mentors who also represent this very core primal safe space, right? Where you can go and Talk about the funky yearbook that may or may not have been published. Oh, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there there needs to be a space and a group of people that need to talk about that and want to talk about that. And that's really important. So that brings me to a a question that we actually got from a student, Adelie, who is a student at St. George's. And she asked, in a nutshell, prior to your vet school experiences, whether or not you had a minority man or woman um, or non-binary person kind of mentoring you pre-vet school and kind of there to support you. And, and, and what role did that play in your experience? So, yeah, I'm going to go to Monica because, like, it sounds like... It sounds like based on our previous conversation that Fernanda and Medisa, you're going to have to think a minute to find those people. (laughs) The first veterinarian I worked with was a white male, older white male whose clinic was in Georgia. I don't need to say anymore. Um, (laughs) But we had to set some rules and mostly on my part. And I think once that those rules were set or when I let him know what I was there for, and he clearly understood that I was going to speak up for myself, then we were fine. I told him I wasn't there to mop the floors. You know, I was there to to learn about veterinary medicine. And from then on, we were okay. And surprisingly, he gave me money toward my books my first year of veterinary school when I got in. But as far as a person of color, I, I knew no one who was a person of color who was a veterinarian, not one. And when I when I went to undergrad, I mean, I took the traditional animal science track of, you know, getting my bachelor's in that area. And of course, I'm at Tuskegee. So we, we have plenty of, of people of color at Tuskegee. But, you know, they all knew. I don't think anybody ever pulled me to the side and said, you can do this. We just they just knew as a group. Here's here's people that are interested in going to veterinary school and, you know, here are the courses you take. And if you have any problems, let us know. But there was nobody really shepherding you through actively. It was more passive. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't have a great story for you. <laughs> <laughs> nobody had to. <laughs> I am 
I I would like to say I yeah. prior to going to vet school because I, I grew up in Trinidad in the Caribbean, and prior to going to vet school when because I, I, I said previously I was eight years old when I decided I wanted mm-hmm. to be a vet, and our vet our family veterinarian was actually a Tuskegee graduate, and so I there was always a subconscious connection that I could aspire to that because I could see somebody who kind of looked like me, who I could be that way one day. Once I got to vet school, as the question is kind of prize going to vet school, did I have any mentors? I didn't have a formal mentor, but I had somebody who I could look to to see and, and who was kind of like, yeah, you could do it. That's fine. But once I got to vet school, I made a very conscious decision. And I, I to, to your listener who is asking the question, I think it's really important to make a conscious decision to find people who can support you. Because I was surrounded very much by white males. That's who I, I did my work experience with before I went to vet school. When I was in England, I did my work experience. Once I was in vet school, a lot of the practices I went to were white males, but I went to Trinidad very often. So I went to Trinidad where I could go to vets that looked like me, who could support me. And I made a very conscious decision to keep going back to Trinidad because I knew I needed to have some part of me be fed and nurtured so that I knew that I was, even if it was tough, there were people rooting for me to get there. And so I think it's really important for your listener to to recognize it's important to have a balance. You can't only have people of color mentoring you. I think if you're in a space Mm -hmm. where there aren't any, then that's fine. You have to learn from everyone. And the lessons you learn from different people are all going to be helpful in your journey onwards. Everything you learn is going to be helpful in your journey onwards. But you need to figure out for yourself what you need to feed you, what you need to help you and find that. And you find a way. That's it. I mean, being a veterinarian is a very hard thing to do. And always think if it was easy, everyone would do it. So it's a hard thing to do. But if you want to succeed in it, then find a way to find what Mm -hmm. you need to get by. Yeah, great point. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. I did not have any mentorship prior to go to prior to 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 go into vet school. It was just that dream. I want to be a vet, and I work. I want to work with cows. I'm from a big city in Brazil, but I grew up in the countryside in a dairy region, and I always had that in my mind. I want to work with cows. I want to work with cows. Had no idea what really veterinarian that works with with cows really does. You know. And then, but once I was I was in there, I was in vet school. I had, as I mentioned, you know, this great person who's still it's not a formal, but it's a, someone that inspired me. She was a woman, very successful, a dairy veterinarian, very well recognized. She did her PhD in Florida. She inspired me. It was someone that I was like, oh, I want to be like her. Very nice, very accessible. And my formal mentor, he's great too. And he was my master's advisor. And he had like half and half students, male and female. And he has never treated us differently. Mm-hmm. So I think, and he was always empowering both of us, both of us all the time. We have to carry this as heavy, find your way. You have to do that. Or you have to, you know. So I think this, this was good. Although my father in the beginning, he was like, no, 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 that's school. It's just a man thing. And you have to especially want to work with large animals. You've got to go and travel. 
he I I was lucky enough to grow up uh, uh, to grow up in a family that also I have a brother and I never heard oh he can do that because he's a man and it's very common so so I think this is this is something good and the other thing that I think it's important in terms of mentorship is that now at this point that I am in my life I look forward to leadership positions but now I have to identify if I look even here within UC Davis, okay, who am I going to be inspired by? Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it's not that easy because a lot of men, a lot of we have to identify yeah. and say, I want to be like that people. So I think this is a challenge, a constant challenge in our lives. And that is a great segue. I could not have asked you to give me a better segue to one of our last questions. And that is, you know, about the leadership pipeline for minority women. Currently, at least in the U.S., we have four deans who are from minority backgrounds in the U.S. Only one of them is a woman, and that's Dr. Ruby Perry, dean at Tuskegee. So, you know, we're, the numbers are small. (laughs) (laughs) particularly for minority women, right? The numbers are pretty small. And even when we look at just broadly organized veterinary medicine in the States and and in Europe, um, I go to the AMI meeting, which is the minority, I mean, the medical educators of Europe meeting at the end of summer. Yeah, I don't see too many of us. And I mean us broadly, (laughs) minority women at that meeting. I see a lot of women, but I don't see a lot of women that look like me or even kind of look like me, right? And so what do you all think we can do to kind of cultivate more diversity in the leadership pipeline? Because to Fernanda's point, as someone who is saying, well, you know, what is what does the next phase of my career look like? Where am I going? And, and you know, Monica, you know, so you moved from faculty to administration. Was there a template? Did you, who did you look to? Who did you talk to? <laughs> I just told the dean at the time that I was looking at a career change, that that I wanted to be more in an administrative role. And he made that happen. But it's been, even being in that role, it's it's been a fight. Just every step of the way, it's, it's you find yourself, and, and I have a close group of friends on main campus who collectively were called minority liaison officers. So there's one for each college. And that's my connection to people who look like me at the university. So we meet twice a month. And the frustrating thing is, is that for all the things I do, I find that it's not uncommon for me not to be at the table discussing things that are in my wheelhouse. People know what I do, but okay, now you're going to have a discussion about this. Why was I not at the table on this? Because I have information to bring to the table about this. And it's a constant asking that question and saying, I should be there in that place. And I can tell you, it's a, it's a daily battle and it's one I'm willing to fight. But again, as everyone has said, it takes a lot of energy. And, and, and you feel like that energy could be so much better spent being creative and, and making doing different things rather than just figuring out how I'm going to prepare for the next battle. It's mm-hmm. it's exhausting. I agree 100%. I think, you know, like in my case, uh, I have to be careful because sometimes I tell myself, oh, but you did not graduate from this country. How can you look forward to a career here? So, and I'm like, oh, but I'm Latin. Oh, but I'm a woman. And also... Not on the top of that, 
that idea that the society has that I am a, a woman, I should at some point make a choice instead of putting all my energy in my career to put all my energy towards building my family, taking care of my family, and my husband should be the one that should succeed in his in his career. So it's a lot of energy because this is in the back of my mind. It took me a while to realize that. And I have to be careful because now I am the one telling myself, mm, is that really for you? Maybe you're good where you are. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, it's a lot of energy. Personally, I don't because I am the school of one. Um, I've never really seen a problem in terms of leadership. So in in the United Kingdom, I am part of the, the Council of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. I sit on that council. I am part of the conversation. So I don't feel that there's a any barrier to me personally. But I'm aware, as I am by myself, that it would be useful for other voices to be in the room. Um, and so I think in terms of diversity, that's the real question, that we, if we can yeah. allow other voices in the room, then we can get different perspectives and different perspectives then bring to us different ideas and different ways of thinking. And so that maybe we can all progress in a way that supports everyone. And so I think certainly I am hopeful to the future that um, we will get to a place where, um, because it it has to be considered important in the first, from the decision makers at the moment. So the current decision makers have mm-hmm. to feel it's important enough to make diversity a priority. Mm-hmm. And if they make diversity a priority, then you have access channels for different people coming in. So for people of different uh, genders and sexualities and races coming through and actually getting to roles of leadership and getting to, to promoted places. But I do, I am hopeful that the more maybe we are all part of the conversation, the more people can think um, or will realize that our voices are important and that they matter and that they will think to include them in all the further conversations. And hopefully it won't be, um, like Monica was saying, a daily battle. Hopefully it will be something that that, that will get to a state or a place where, um, yeah, it's it's just a part of life that we're, we're, our voices are included. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, just one one uh, point that uh, I just thought here. I think Monica said something important, which is to have maybe one thing that would help is to have a group where we could connect and discuss this, you know, like uh, with people that are like us, uh, not that we are different, but that face the same challenge that we, 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 we do face. I think this is great because at least one, you don't feel so isolated. Mm-hmm. And second, I think when a lot of people are thinking together, it's easier to find a way to navigate through the problems and, you know, finding a solution. So yeah. I think this is a this is a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a great conversation. And I just, Mendisa, I think that the, one of the themes that I think um, I'm finding in, in your comments throughout the show that has just been so interesting and, and kind of takes me back <laughs> to the beginning of my time in veterinary medicine and, and working on diversity is that when you're an N of one where the numbers are so small, you don't you don't even have the luxury of thinking about diversity inside of diversity, right? That's a luxury. Right. right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Like warm bodies that are different. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Just come in, right. And just kind of open the door to 
whatever might be considered diversity and or other or different or, you know, when you have even a little bit of diversity, it creates a very odd luxury to be able to think about more diversity. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit odd. But, but a very real thing. And I think that for the listeners, understanding that when you kind of meet the lonely only, that, that maybe they don't have that luxury of thinking about this landscape. Of course, they think about the landscape, but the landscape may look very different to them than, than for those of us where we're in, we're in environments that have a little. There's like a little, little, there's like none, there's like one, there's a little, and that's a lot, right? And so um, I think that those are really, that's an important point. So Yeah, but I, I'm aware, I am aware that there are other vet, veterinarians of color in this country. Absolutely. I'm aware that there are other veterinarians of color, you know, outside of my space. So even though in my small geographic location and in the small meeting rooms that I go to, I am one, I know that there are more. And it's not just of color, but I do think just because if you're in a room where everybody else is thinking the same and acting the same and they have the same mindset, then nothing will change because you're yeah. coming from one one track Mm-hmm. And if you can broaden that track a little bit and include other people's ideas and also value them. So not just that, oh, we'll just let her speak because oh, we'll just let her annoying voice speak and then we'll just see. <laughs> Move, moving on, moving on swiftly. It's important to then value somebody else's perspective. And then I think, I just think the more you can include others, the more rich, the, the richer at the tapestry of, of, of life kind of and of all the conversations kind of become and I think it's really really important to do that in everything that yeah in everything that we do so yeah great that's great Thank you. Thank you. So as we wrap, I'm going to just do, um, I've been taking some notes throughout the show. I'm going to run down a couple of highlight points that I think definitely I want to make sure that our listeners did not miss (laughs) in the last hour that I think are so important, not only for, um, I think, and I think that some of these things are just, they're very um, specific to this conversation, but they're certainly more broadly applicable. So here, here's here's my quick list, and then I'll give each of you an opportunity to add anything, any guidance, advice, wise words to the masses. Um, so those things are: you learn to pre-manage other people's expectations of you by very distinctively introducing yourself, doctor. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Box around it right up front. Yeah. <laughs> right. There is an inherent understanding that you all are coming into an environment that may not be diverse, but that is a consequence. That's just a that's just par for the course. It's a consequence of this dream that you had. It's mm. kind of, you know, maybe the tax of the dream. There is a lot of cognitive energy spent on self-validating and pep talking. And that is not only on the issues of race or ethnicity, but gender as well. And kind of how those two things intersect. There's a lot of energy, a lot (laughs) of self-talk that kind of happens. There's some um, guidance to be very deliberate in finding the mentors that you want and need because they may not just kind of magically appear. You may need to kind of 
step out and um, be deliberate. As Mindisa said, she, she routinely went back to Trinidad just to even be near or see the role models that, uh, for, for folks that looked like her. And that that really does highlight the importance of kind of that mirroring of kind of being able to see yourself in the profession. Gender roles permeate everything. Talk a bit about not only kind of if you're in a very male-dominated environment where folks are bringing their female spouses and there's kind of this weird, everybody else wants to know who you're supposed to hang out with (laughs) during the chat. But there's also this kind of piece around what does it mean to start thinking about your career and your family planning and whether or not you need to step forward or step back or kind of how does all of that how does it all come together, I think, is, is a big issue. And then finally, I think each of you have kind of spoke to this need for if you want to build that leadership pipeline, then leaders have to commit to diversity. They have to kind of be very, very clear and deliberate, but that's important to them. And then they cultivate a, an environment and resources that, that foster that, you know, that pipeline. But recognizing, too, that even kind of once you've achieved certain things, that it, it, some of those challenges, there's great opportunities, but, but there's certainly still some challenges associated with that. So any other wise words of wisdom? Mendisa? I think I'd like certainly to say, I think. The, the point that we said about the, the extra kind of cognitive energy spending on trying to build yourself up and, and not not listen to the, the negative self-talk, I think it's really important to remember that everybody has that. And so you have people of white males also have negative self-talk and white females also have negative self-talk. And so everybody has it. You just have to find your crowd that will still cheer you on. And so that it has to start from you, but you still have to find, you know, some, you still have to find a group of people who will still believe in you, whether it be your family or your members of your church or your friends from way back when, or a group of people who will keep cheering you on, even when, you feel like the world is telling you, no, it, it, it's important to find to find some people. And I think it's it's really important to, to be determined and find a way forward. If you have a dream, don't let anyone talk you out of it. Collect those dollars because you'll be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Collect the hundred dollars, as I like to say. <laughs> for everybody that says no. Yeah. <laughs> so, Fernanda, any sage wisdom from you? Yeah, I totally agree with Madiza. I would say that although we feel overwhelmed and having to think about that and being aware of all the this challenge or place that we we are and what people are thinking about us and how how good I have to be to belong or to have the right to belong to that group. On the other hand, I think if we switch a little bit our mindset and see that as a very interesting journey towards our own own being, it's amazing. I think a lot of people take some of this stuff for granted. And when you have the opportunity, being, there, is, there is a good side, although you have to really look into that. But there is a, there is a bright side of being a minority. And I think one of the... One of the bright, one of the things on this bright side, is this opportunity that we have to be become more conscious and more aware about, you know, not only like me as a Latina woman, but also others. So I think this is this is great. This is great. Awesome. Thank you. And finally, certainly last but not least, Monica. So I echo what's been said. 
I would also say that I think a, I don't want to say a cross, but a, a, a burden or a responsibility all of us share is that somewhere we have an inherent need to educate others. And that can be another energy burner, especially if, if you're not seeing results or results are not occurring as quickly as you'd like. You know, there are some people that say, it's not my job to educate. And there's some people that take up the mantle and say, I, I accept that challenge. I think what we should probably remember is that while we're trying to be mentors to our own people who look like us and who are coming from our walks of life, that mentoring can also occur to people who do not look like us. And it's an opportunity to plant some seeds in those populations to help foster the importance of diversity, whether it's like, man, this is diversity of thought, diversity of race, ethnicity, or culture, diversity of ability and disability. It's, mm-hmm. it's planting those seeds. And so we may not see that come to fruition for us, but we can take enjoyment and accomplishment in saying we've made the effort. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I think that that's so important that we do. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to to mentor broadly and recognizing that the impact of that beyond race, beyond gender, ethnicity and background, uh, huge benefits. So thank you. So with that, I think that's a great place for us to end our show. Thank you so much, my guest, Fernanda, Mandisa, Monica. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation about minority women in veterinary medicine. For our listeners, um, you can certainly find this episode on any of your podcast apps. You can find back episodes. I also wanted to mention Mandisa Green, Dr. Green, was referred by our wonderful colleagues at BVEDS, and that is the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society. We did a show on um, BVEDS just a couple of episodes again. That's ago. That is episode 45. Got to name check all of our previous content that deals and feeds into this show. Be sure to find us and rate us on your favorite podcast app. Be also sure to find us on Facebook at AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion on Air for more information about previous shows, diversity programming, upcoming shows, all that good information. So with that, I will sign us off for this show. Again, to my guests, thank you so much. And we will listen to you next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.